Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The race is on, and Max Verstappen took the most dominant win of the 2021 season with a lights-to-flag victory in the Styrian Grand Prix. But does this fourth consecutive win for Red Bull mean that Mercedes is now the underdog, and will it be the same again in the upcoming Austrian Grand Prix? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and more are Mark Hughes, Scott Mitchell and Gary Anderson. This episode of the Race F1 podcast is brought to you by Beer 52. It's very appropriate given this has been a great season to watch from the comfort of your sofa at home. And what better accompaniment to that than a glass of craft beer? If that sounds like your idea of the perfect Sunday afternoon, then Beer 52, the world's largest beer club with over 170,000 active members, has got you covered. The Race F1 podcast has teamed up with Beer52 for this special introductory offer of a free case of eight unique and hand-picked craft beers. All you'll have to do is pay the £5.95 postage costs and to sign up, either use the code RACE, that's R-A-C-E in capital letters, or by visiting beer52.com forward slash race. Then every month, Beer52 sends a case of craft beers to its members, each with a different theme. In the past, that's included Belgium, Korea, California, New Zealand, and many, many more. I particularly fancy a Korean beer, actually, as I think I'm one of the few who misses the old Korean Grand Prix as used to enjoy going to that race. As part of your membership, you'll also get a magazine and snack, as well as becoming part of the Beer 52 online community. And if you're not keen on dark beer, you can select the light beer option instead. And of course, you can pause or cancel your membership at any time. So if you like the sound of this, head to beer52.com forward slash race or use the code RACE. That's R-A-C-E in capital letters. And get your special introductory case of eight craft beers for just the postage cost of £5.95. I've got an important question, Ed. Does Beer 52 include Swedish beers in its range? Now, that question I anticipated because I know how much you like Swedish things and my researches indicate, yes, it does. I've pretty much got craft beer from anywhere you could possibly imagine. Hello, Gary Anderson. Are you a a craft beer with the race kind of person or more a glass of red wine? Um, I'm a bit of both, really, to be honest. It depends. You know, I, I like to get a, have a beer just to sort of get the dust out of the throat um, and then probably follow it up with a glass of wine with dinner. But uh, yes, it sounds like a very good idea to me. I think I'll have to look, on, look into that a little bit. My wife might not be happy, but uh, that's, that's a different problem. The perfect strategy. And Mark Hughes, I imagine you'll have to be a little bit careful about what you're drinking this weekend, given the Red Bull ring is generally full of energy drinks on offer in the media centre from my past visits. Yeah, you've got to be a bit careful combining that with uh, beer. Um, it, it gets a bit frothy. That's very, very disappointing. You should try some craft beers, though. That will sort you out. Anyway, let's get on with the race. Mark, you've had some very complicated races to explain recently. This one looked pretty straightforward in that Verstappen led from pole position, controlled the race superbly. Was there ever any doubt? Not really, no. Um, they had uh, two, two and a half tenths advantage and it just, it just played out. They, they were clinical in how they used it. Verstappen did a, you know, perfect executed qualifying in race really and, um, ran Mercedes ragged and, um, the Mercedes guys were, were pushing much harder than the Red Bull guys just trying to keep up. And eventually the, the tires sort of cried enough on the Merck and the, 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 the Red Bull still had that performance in hand. So, you know, in the, in the modern era, we talked about this before, the way, the way you run a, a Grand Prix when you've got a dominant car, it, it doesn't make it look as dominant as it looked in the old days, perhaps, because all you do is you, you, first of all, get out of DRS reach, and then you get out of undercut reach, and then you just judge your pace back to the, the guy that's chasing you so that you're not taking too much out of the tyres so that you can always respond. And that's, that's all Max did, and that's all he needed to do. And uh, had he been pushed harder, I'm sure there was plenty more in hand. And uh, yeah, it was there was really no way, no strategic tricks that that could have been played that might have upset it. the apple car. You know, would have taken something random like a, you know, the thunderstorm that was half promised, or you know, some sort of incident coming at the the wrong time, but for 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 one and not the other. 
Um, other than that, it was a very, very straightforward race. One of Formula One's favourite things is imminent rain that never comes, or at least waits until about 10 minutes after the race and soaks everyone on the scene but doesn't liven up the race. But yeah, relatively straightforward, comfortable win for Red Bull. But Gary, Mercedes was outclassed. Deficit of probably a couple of tenths in pace in the race. Who knows, maybe more if Verstappen had really stretched his legs. That's four defeats in a row now. Now, Simon Townend, he's the first of our members club questioners, asks, where has the Mercedes pace gone? And he also suggests that it feels like a season-defining result in terms of triggering this sense of resignation from Hamilton and Mercedes with them knowing there's not any further development to come. So has Mercedes created the ultimate diva and can't find the sweet spot, or has Red Bull aced it? I think really, you know... Mercedes have have had a diva for a few years now, but they've always, as you say, they've always got on top of it. They've always got the got it to work into its working window quite well. But all the stuff that they're sort of spent their time this year doing, which, from my point of view, was complaining about um, the high rate regulation or the floor regulations that suited the high rate cars, uh, the flexing wings, uh, now the engine <coughs> performance, um, you know, even the tire pressures, and and because because that. Um, Verstappen and them seem to be running lower tire pressures than others. You know, all of this stuff just just mounts up to the fact that Mercedes don't look as though they're focused on themselves and making themselves better. They look as though they're fo- focused on trying to hurt somebody else. You know, even today in the race, Lewis Hamilton was sort of asking Bono where he was losing time at, and you know, to have that conversation during during a race and be told that you're losing you know a quarter of a second on the straights, that's not something you should be doing during a Grand Prix. You, you know, you get your head down and you're trying to, to drive and do the best job you can with the car you've got. You don't need to know what the problem is. You just need to know that you've got a problem. And the only way you can do that is to try and overcome it somehow. So I, I think this year Mercedes have sort of lost their focus a little bit and they're not not responding to the situation in the fact that they're a very, very clever top-end engineering group that can that could find solutions to this. But by saying, well, we're not doing any development, um it's it's just sort of making up that excuse again. It's, it's one of those sort of things, I think, you know, to, to identify your problem and then rectify it, you have to you have to first of all take it on on the shoulders that you're you're the problem. You know, the others aren't just better. If you take Mercedes, it's been what, seven years, isn't it? They've they've had a dominant car, but others haven't blamed them for doing it well. You know, they've actually took it on the chin and said that Mercedes did do it better than them. So I think Mercedes just need to look at themselves a little bit more than than try and find that uh, that elusive thing that somebody else is doing that might be deemed to be wrong. Yeah, they made a little bit of noise about the new Honda engine that was introduced. They did make some reliability tweaks, which are permitted. That's all in the regulations. But I did ask Toto Wolff if there was some implication that there was a performance gain connected, but he did say, no, it was all uh, fair and, and above board and it's all transparent, that process. But there's another question. Bob from New York asks if Mercedes tyre issues were down to the choice of downforce package, as it seems that Red Bull were kinder to the Pirellis in Austria. Well, the thing, it's very strange. It's just, you know, if you go around the corners faster because you've got more wing on the car, that's where the tyre gets used. Um, so if you actually have a setup on the car with less downforce that's allowing you still to do the better the better lap time just, and you're not going around the corners just as quickly, uh, but you're making it up down the straights, then that's easier on the tyres. So it's very, very easy to, to destroy yourself, really, um, by thinking that you have a better solution because... The, the tire only gets used in, in the corner. You know that's that's where the that's where the maximum usage is. You're pulling four four and a half g. You, you know you're breaking five or six g. So that's where the tire gets its uh, its abuse. What do you make of it, Mark? In terms of that race, there was a little bit of Hamilton struggling with uh, with blistering at, at one stage. Was there a, a big difference between Red Bull and Mercedes tire management wise, or was it just the pace difference? Yeah, there was a little bit of difference, but as I say, I think it was um, a function of how hard uh, they, were, they were being pushed. Um, and uh, yes, the the Merck had a, a, a bigger rear wing on it. It does seem to, um, its optimum does seem to be, um, by default, a, a bigger rear wing than the, the Red Bull's optimum. Um, so that's, you know, part of the, the straight line deficit. Um, and the Red Bull was getting through the corners just as quickly, apart from turns six and seven, which is the old, the, the fast sweeps um where the mercedes was slightly quicker but um not enough so to, to offset the, the straight line so um in terms of 
um, the, the, the Thai usage. It was, it was Hamilton's that, that, that gave out before um, before Marx's. And uh, yeah, he was he was struggling from, or uh, probably, uh, I think he was when he stopped on uh, thirty. Was it thirty or twenty nine? I can't remember. But um, yeah, he was he was a, a good chunk behind by then, and um, the, the 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 front left actually was beginning to open up, even though it was um, it was a, a rear tire dig sort of circuit. Uh, they were suffering that as well, but. Um, not not to the extent that uh, Red Bull were, and I think it was just you, they weren't. The Red Bull didn't need to be pushed as hard as simple as that, really. There's also a lot of talk about upgrades or the lack thereof. Lewis Hamilton saying they they needed some. Uh, Scott Oscar Robledo asks if Mercedes should work to reverse the Red Bull advantage, or does it write off 2021 in favour of being on the front foot for 2022? Well, if it um, if it wants to win the title this year, it's, it's going to need to improve its its current car um there there is only uh it does still seem that there is only a small difference between them because unless Red Bull have come up with something that has fundamentally moved the goalposts and put it two or three attempts clear which is where the Mercedes drivers and Mercedes as a team sort of felt it was this weekend whether this is circuit specific or if they have genuinely moved that far clear it would strike me as odd if they've got that advantage out of nowhere because they, they they were fractionally quicker in France as well, which maybe came as a bit of a surprise given that's been a Mercedes stronghold. But it has been so nip and tuck between them all season that this kind of advantage was eye-opening. Um, the problem that Mercedes has got is that, you know, development programmes and, every, uh, and everything that goes with that, uh, it, they're all set well in advance and they've made it very clear that they weren't willing to compromise the 2022 work. So it's not they're not in a position now, I think, where they have to decide whether to press on with the 2022 development or give up and focus on 2022, because they've been they've been shifting the they've been shifting towards 2022 for a while, and it's been clear we've not seen new parts on 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 the Mercedes, um, and everything that they're saying is that they won't be bringing new parts. So I, I the the question that Oscar's asking, I think, was probably asked internally a long time ago. I don't think it's something that they're reacting to now. So um, you could argue, mate, do they need to U-turn? Do they need to try and bring some of those resources that have been allocated to next year and try and bring something onto this year's car? Um, it, I'd be surprised if they did, if this is genuinely their mapped out plan and that's what they want to stick to. They're, I'm sure they'll stick with it and they'll probably be putting the emphasis on trying to, if they can, broaden the working window of this car, because obviously we've seen when it's at its peak and it's doing it and it's doing what the drivers want. This this car is good and it's a Red Bull beater. The the problem is that the Red Bull seems to work in a sort of wider range of conditions at the moment. But Gary, you're a great believer in trying to get the most out of the package you've got. Do you think there is going to be more for Mercedes to extract from it if they get their head down? Um, yeah, for sure. But the, the big thing for me is they've got to stop trying to find what Red Bull are doing. That's potentially beating them uh, and just accept that Red Bull at this point in time, their package is that little bit better. And I think Mercedes have actually sort of helped Red Bull, and this might take a little bit of explaining, but this, this rear wing flexing thing for me was a was a, a direction that I found quite strange. I mean, if Red Bull did optimise the flexing of the rear wing within the regulations, which I'm pretty sure they would have done, that means in high-speed corners the rear wing was actually dropping away or the load in the rear of the car was dropping away and that's the last thing a driver really wants so they would have to run less front down force to got the balance and high speed and then when the car slowed down through a, a slower corner the rear wing would come back up into play and the car would understeer more so i think by the mercedes complaining about it and the fia jumping in red bull obviously stiffened up the rear wing package but what it did allow them to do then was look at their level of downforce and drag they had at high speed and run a wing package that, that generated that same level of downforce. So in, in effect, they had a more stable rear downforce, which meant they had less understeer at low speed. So uh, you know, by, by, by making everything more rigid as such, you can get a better balanced car. If you have stuff that's flexing and moving on you, um, intentionally, because as I say, the regulations allow a certain amount, then it's very easy to lose yourself with it. So I think Mercedes have done Red Bull a favour in, in uh, getting them to stiffen up the rear wing assembly. But we should also note there's still a long way to go in this championship and 
Paul Ricard, if things had gone a little bit different, Mercedes could have won. So still perhaps premature to write off Mercedes completely, but it definitely feels like their their toughest battle. Should we move on, Scott, to the battle between the second drivers at Mercedes and Red Bull? Because that was a little bit more interesting. Bottas held on in the end. Perez was initially ahead, then had a slow stop. So what do you make of that fight? Uh, well, they did their best to inject a little bit of tension and interest at the end of the race, didn't they? Uh, but it was ultimately futile because Perez didn't quite get close enough to launch the attack. Um, I, I mean, it is better for Bottas than it is for Perez because Bottas turned um, a track position deficit at the start into a podium um, and he helped Mercedes sort of, uh, reduce the damage in the Constructors' Championship. But I don't this race didn't reflect well on either of them. You know, they... Perez, it took him a while to clear the McLaren of Lando Norris, but they spent an awful lot longer in the race in in free air, you know, free of Norris, and they did stuck behind the McLaren, and they ended up smashed by their teammates. You know, but uh, I know, as I said, Bottas started it started in fifth, so he had to come through slightly, but he there was a you know a huge gaping space for Hamilton to be able to make that pit stop at the end. And they 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 were they were just left left behind. It wasn't um, it wasn't much of a of a um, it wasn't much of an argument for either of them as potential lead drivers or anything like that. I think you saw 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 their respective limitations. They were they 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 were nowhere. And, and Hamilton, even when the Mercedes wasn't quite as competitive, he he was gradually falling back from from Verstappen. But he was at least keeping the the margin respectable for most of the race, um, whereas Bottas obviously was nowhere near, and, and Perez is just not on Verstappen's level anywhere near it in qualifying. And then in the race, you sort of expect him to be a bit more respectable because obviously he's so much stronger on a Sunday as Checo, but even that wasn't enough. And I guess for whatever reason, maybe it was the lap spent behind Norris early on, he couldn't use the the, the softs at the start quite as well as he wanted to. I just thought it was, I just thought it was a really, really big gap for there to be to the number one drivers, regardless of the, um, you know, the circumstances of their race. I didn't think they were, I didn't think they had such exceptional circumstances in their own races to justify a gap of that size. And Bottas, of course, had that three-place penalty that dropped him to, to fifth on the grid for that spin in FP two, coming out of the the pit box in in second gear. Gary, you've spent more time in active Formula 1 pit lanes than us. Do you think that was a fair penalty? And I, I presume if you're in that situation, you don't take kindly to people flinging car, F1 cars around uh, in pit lanes full of people. No. Um, I mean, I sort of come from the era whenever there was no speed limit in the pit lane to begin with. So, you know, you were getting cars going through the pit lane as fast as they could basically drive it. So it, it used to be very, very dangerous. Um, right now, there's a lot less people in the pit lane than there used to be as well. So... Any time you spin a Formula One car, you never quite know where it's going to end up at. That's the problem because, you know, you've got to respect those people that could have been there. You know, they weren't standing in the way at the point in time, but there could have been another team there waiting for their car to come in or whatever, uh, another group of people. So I think you've got to put a penalty in place for something like that in the pit lane. Um, But what we need to do is sort of standardize a little bit on these penalties. There's There's other things happen that that we don't get a penalty. And a typical example is if a driver comes in too fast and knocks down his jackman. We've seen that, front jackman. We've seen that a few times. You know, those are the things that the team and the driver, they're responsible for the safety within the pits. And uh, with, the, with the pit crews that we have now, you know, there's, there's, what, 16, 17, 18 people out there whenever a car's coming in. So if you had the Bottas occasion happen whenever you've got a full crew out there, Wait, and their car coming in, it could be could be disastrous. So yes, I think I think you have to have a penalty for that. Um, you know, you got to try and stop it before it gets out of control. But it's a it's a difficult one to do because obviously, you know, if pit lanes are, are wet, it's going to be even so much easier to spin and do something wrong. But I think you know he, he a lesson needed to be set there. Whatever you like to call it, a precedent needed to be set. And I think that's really what the FIA did. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think the pit lane is not a place to be 
playing with safety, should we say, given that there are so many people around, so I've got no problem with that. So, penalty mark. Talking about Bottas, Gareth Jenkins from our members club asks, which is the more impressive qualifying achievement, Bottas out qualifying Hamilton or Russell qualifying 11th and only just missing out on Q3 by eight thousandths of a second? Yeah, they're both pretty impressive uh, standalone th- achievements, um, but uh, yeah, for me it was it was probably it was probably Russell with the with the Williams. I think the Williams is improving, but I think um, he's um, you know given it given the team the the direction to to help improve it and take it in the direction that that helps with with the way he wants to drive it. But he is wringing its neck every time he gets into it, and um, I think uh, two of it's improving, but it's not a Q3 car, and he came within you know hundreds of getting it into Q3. So yeah, as as, as a standout exceptional um, piece of qualifying, uh, yeah, I would say pro- probably George. Yeah, I think Russell has been consistently extracting the most from the car in qualifying, and that's putting him ahead of cars that should be quicker if drivers were getting the the most out of them. So yeah, another very very good Saturday for him, keeping up his 100% Q2 record. Well, Gary, seeing as we talked about George Russell, should we quickly have a look at what happened to him after that stellar qualifying performance? He started 10th, thanks to Sonoda's penalty, ran 8th in the first stint, really well managed. Then it became clear he was losing air from the pneumatic system, which led to him switching to two stops and then retiring. So can you explain what might have gone wrong there, please? Yeah, well, obviously he was running 8th, but more importantly for me, he was running a competitive 8th um, and a very mature 8th, I suppose. So this was looking like a solid result. But the problems, the gremlins crept in again, and he just doesn't seem to have any luck. On these on these engines, they've got a, an air valve system, and basically, the you know years ago the the springs, the valve springs were done away with, and you have a little air cylinder there to replace the valve spring. Um, it's lighter, um, and you don't get that resonance of the spring um, being pushed open by the camshaft and trying to close, and, and the spring can get into this sort of resonance where it just doesn't shut the, the, the valve fast enough and then the valve could clip the piston so air valve air closing systems were brought into the to the valve system as i say it just replaces the spring basically but obviously because of that you have to have you have to have pressure in the system um, and all the all the, the air valves will be connected together in a little sort of manifold um, and they're, they're actually piped up quite intricately in other words the you know the two next to each other don't talk to each other so it's it's in line with the firing order of the engine um and that all then goes to a reservoir which has got um you know a, a volume of pressurized air in it um not a big volume but it's a volume of pressurized air just to allow for to put a bit more of a cushion in t- so that the spring doesn't see a big change of pressure a big change of force as it's opened and shut um and obviously somewhere along that system there was a, a leak of some sort it could be on the seals in the valve system it could be within the internal manifolding in the head, um, which could have a little bit of porosity. Uh, it could have been on an external um, pipe connection because the reservoir would be in the side pod somewhere so you can get to it and, and top it up if you need to. Um, but that has to be piped up then to the engine. So many, many connections and stuff on the way that you know if one failed that little bit, and it won't take very long, um, obviously they, they pitted in and topped it up to try to overcome the issue but then it, it went back down again. So, you know, you can't really take the risk these days with the engines. Um, and, and you never get on top of it. I mean, if you had a leak, I think he did about three laps before he had to come back in again. Um, if you had a leak that fast, it is going to end up in disaster um, with the engine blowing itself up. So, end of the day, retirement was the only thing to do, which, you know, George will feel pretty bad about it tonight. But he should be proud of what he did this weekend because it's a it was a major step forward, to be honest. Yeah, and certainly he was on course for a good result if he'd stayed between Sonoda and Alonso that would have been 10th place and he reckoned he could have finished a few places higher Scott Oscar Robledo asks when will George Russell get some luck and more seriously has he done enough to justify the second Mercedes seat yeah I know that um I know that George was properly gutted after this um and it'll be stinging not just for him but because he genuinely cares about the team and he obviously doesn't he know he knows that these opportunities don't come along too often for Williams. And I think he was genuinely hurting on behalf of the team after this. But ultimately, this is something that's um, 
it's going to count against the team longer term than it will George. Um, this this is the sort of result, if you get it, that's the difference between 8th and 10th in the Constructors' Championship and that has financial consequences for Williams. Whereas for George, it's something, you know, Gary was sort of alluding to, he'll be really upset about it for 24 hours or so and then he'll get get over it. This result, sort of linking in to, to Oscar's question, it's not going to really impact anything about George George's situation it's not like he's um well I'd be very surprised if to get the second Mercedes seat he was told he had to get a points finish in Austria for example all he's done is he's had a short window at the start of the race to prove his credentials I think he took it he was driving a very good first stint um it's another uh it's another showcase of 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 his abilities um it might it might just underline his credentials and the argument for him having that Mercedes seat, he, I, I think he's done more than enough to justify it. So, so I, I didn't feel like when, when it happened, I was gutted for him because it is a shame, and it would be great to see him and Williams get that result. But I didn't feel like it was, uh, you know, taking something bigger away from him. It's just, just something like this in, in the moment. I think this is, this is one where you do have to file it under just pure bad luck for, for George himself. Um, whereas I know that a couple of other times he's been in points contention with Williams and it's not gone to plan. There have been questions afterwards about whether he's choked, you know, has, has he thrown this away? Is, does this show that he can't actually handle this situation? Um, I still believe that what he did uh, in the Sakir Grand Prix for Mercedes last year it trumps any potential mistake he may have made for Williams fighting over a ninth or a tenth place finish because he, he was in with a chance of winning a Grand Prix and, and should have won. So, um, yeah, he he, w- he will get some luck sooner rather than later. I think he's he's a driver who's yet again in the first stint of this Grand Prix proven that he deserves bigger opportunities than he's got at the moment. And sooner or later, that that luck will turn. But yeah, he, he's definitely done he's definitely done enough to justify a bigger opportunity than what he's got now. I think it's worth noting where he is impressive as well is in the way he manages races and the race stints, which is an area sometimes a weakness for Bottas. I think that's sometimes underestimated. People talk about the the first lap weakness Russell sometimes has, which didn't show today. He was 10th up to 8th. Admittedly, that was two places that were handed to him, but he didn't lose any ground on the first lap. That's focused on, but yeah, he manages these stints very, very well. Should we move on to McLaren, Mark? Lando Norris, another fine drive, fifth place. Justine Kaufman's question is that it was quite surprising to see Lando Norris yield a podium position early on while looking quite pacey. And having also seen Daniel Ricciardo suffer from a momentary power deficit, is it possible temperature sensitivity was a weakness there? Or is it elevation of the Red Bull ring that was more impactful? Or was Norris just managing his race the way he felt needed to be? I think there's a couple of elements there. Yes, I think it was a little bit uh, marginal on cooling. You've got It was an extremely hot day anyway, but it's... Um, a high altitude track um, and if I think if you're at all marginal on cooling um, you, you you will have to manage it a little bit and I think there was a certain amount of that going on with both McLarens um, but in terms of the pace uh, I, I think Lando did did it about right I think he judged it about right he he, he you know he, he fought over the place on the first lap um, the others you know, Perez and Bottas were sort of tucked in behind them and just managing their tires on the heavy fuel load um, and they weren't really challenging him but as soon as they decided to to challenge him it was it was going to cost him more time to um, fight with the cars that ultimately were, were, were going to beat him anyway so he was only going to be losing time against his real competition which later turned out to be Sainz's Ferrari um, so I think he judged it perfectly actually I don't think um, it, that may have coincided with when he needed to do a bit of management with the with the cooling in which case it was even um, more finely judged so no, I don't think it was particularly an issue, but yes, it, um, it was it was quite demanding of the cooling here this weekend, especially the um, electrical systems. And ultimately, I don't think it made much difference to the to the result for Norris. His battle was, as you said, indeed with uh, with Sainz, and in fact, he was helped in that by Lewis Hamilton parking in front of Carlos Sainz for uh, a chunk of the uh, the second stint while. Uh, struggling a little bit for for pace himself. The next question, Simon Herbert, is actually directed at me. He asks, at what point does Ed think that Ricardo's struggles against Norris will become career-threatening? I'd say we're some way off being career-threatening at the moment. He's got a lot of credit in the bank. He is a high-quality driver. He's got a three-year deal with McLaren. However, I do think we've we've kind of moved from the, the period in the early season where it's kind of normal adaptation 
into the point where he's making slightly heavy weather of it. I don't think it's a crisis, but it, it's it's proving tough for Ricardo. I think this is a bit of a shock, his performance here. I'd be very interested to see how he goes at the same circuit this weekend because he's got all the data he could need. He has another go at the Red Bull ring. So this is a great opportunity to show if he really understands and, and can adapt. So if I don't see any progress in that regard, I'd, I'd be pretty worried. Ultimately, I think if he gets into to the second half of the season after the break, particularly the last third or so, and he's still having moments like this, then that's a, that's a bit of a problem because then you will start to see the tide permanently turning and Norris just being seen as a high caliber driver. But I think he's still got credit, and I'm sure I'm sure he'll get there in the uh, in the end because he is a, a very very good driver. Ferrari, Gary, they excelled in qualifying and slumped in the race in France, but it's the other way around at the Red Bull ring. Carlos Sainz 6th, Charles Leclerc 7th. They put a lot of effort into tackling their tyre troubles. Tamara Salter asks, what changes have Ferrari made in one week to turn around their race pace? Well, one of the big changes, obviously, is a different circuit. So you've got to sort of look at that. But, you know, Ferrari, they sort of still confuse me a little bit because they don't seem to be able to get on top of the good qualifying and a good race at the same at the same time. And, and that's the challenge, really. You know, you're always going to have to get your tires working for that one that first lap in qualifying to get a, a, a you know get a good qualifying position and then you've got to be able to look after them for the race um and they don't seem to be able to get that balance very well or very often so it's it's one of these things i mean that just the settings of the car the, the the stiffnesses of the car how you load the tires up on that initial lap can make a massive difference to to how you the tires degrade in the, in the race so they've obviously learned from their paul ricard um struggles i suppose you might call it um that they've they've gone all one direction a little bit too far um but it is it is quite a difficult thing to understand how you get the 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 car to work with both in both scenarios some teams obviously as we see with red bull you know their car was quick in qualifying their car was quick in the race mercedes were second quickest in qualifying as such and and uh second quickest in the race so the top teams can get there the car working in both scenarios fairly well not not always but fairly well uh, and that's the thing they've got to focus on but i think this weekend it probably shows them quite a big step because they've come from paul ricard where it was all one way um and they've come to the a1 ring or the red bull ring and it's all the other way so they've actually been able to you know tinker with the little bits that make the difference so now they've got to look at how they can combine those little bits and try to get the best out of the car in both scenarios but it's it's no easy task i have to say because with these regulations the way they are where the car goes into part for me you, you can only tinker uh with a few little bits and pieces a differential setup uh front wing angles really that's about it to be honest very very little you can do between qualifying and the race so you've got to get yourself a a set a situation where you can get that front tire working for qualifying because you can wind on a lot more front wing um you can get better traction because you can lock up the diff and then you can you can change those things then for the race so it's they had a big learning curve with these two races and i think we'll see them benefit from that in the longer term getting the balance between the two a bit better scott charles leclerc his race didn't start so well he had that stop at the end of the first lap after the clash with pierre gasly on the first lap richard craig asks do you agree that leclerc should have received a penalty for his careless wandering across the track he also mentions that that ruined his race bet too as well, so doubly uh, unfavourable to all Charles Leclerc. Yeah, um, I, I wouldn't ad, I wouldn't advocate a Leclerc penalty, but I wouldn't have protested if he'd been given one. Um, the The main reason I wouldn't advocate one is because it's the, it's the first lap. The rules of racing are always treated slightly differently on the first lap. It was coming out of the first corner. Leclerc and Gasly had both gone off track at turn one and will rejoin in there was a third car Alonso on the inside so the circumstances did make it a tricky one to judge um I just thought um I thought Leclerc was more was more at fault than anyone in that because Gasly had a car on his inside but also if you watch Gasly's onboard back he he doesn't really move he doesn't really react to Alonso he doesn't change the trajectory of his car Leclerc misjudges trying to tuck in behind the Alpha Tauri. That that's what you know. Leclerc admitted afterwards that's what he was trying to do. He feels that Gasly moved left as as Leclerc was trying to move right and tuck in behind him. But I think actually in reality it was um, it was Leclerc moving right fractionally too early. Um, 
because there's no that there, there was just no way that that the Ferrari was going to suddenly disappear behind the Alfa Tauri. Um, that there was no movement left from Gasly that that, that that changed that. So yeah, I thought that was just slightly careless from Leclerc to be honest. Um, and just a little bit of, a little bit of uh, spatial awareness trouble, should we say, on the on the first lap. Understandable. I, I do see how that can happen so easily in an F1 car at such speeds, but. Um, I do expect slightly better from Leclerc. And after that, Mark, Leclerc did drive really well, uh, aside, of course, from clipping Kimi Raikkonen's front wing when he pulled across in front of him after a pass. It didn't actually slow Raikkonen, but but he did make uh, light contact, another misjudgment. But Matt Wyatt asks if that storming recovery drive makes up for the misjudgment of the first lap. And also, after Leclerc got a free pass on his mistakes from last year, is it a worry that the mistakes are creeping in this year? Is that a problem? I think he's one of those guys that... Um sort of pushes beyond the feasible sometimes and it, it's, it sometimes works for him and sometimes enables him to to get results from the car that it, it doesn't deserve um, and you know when, you, when you're doing that when you're in that situation we talked a lot about this last year when the, when the car was even less competitive you, you, you will sometimes um, you know just, just go wrong and I think um, you, you you don't get one without the other, so yeah, I think um, it's it's not good that the, the 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 record of errors, first lap errors in particular. But um, I think if he was in a, a competitive car, it would probably just dissolve away. Yeah, I, th- I was inclined to let him get away a bit more with last year. The ones this this race are a little bit needless, particularly that Raikkonen one. That's just a just a slight bit of inattentiveness or just imprecision with it. I know these cars are absolutely enormous and it's bizarre how <laughs> just how far forward the, the front wings are. But yeah, I'd, I'd be a little bit worried about that if I was Charles Leclerc. Great driver, but just needs to cut those errors out. Uh, Gary, looking further back, Lance Stroll, a decent weekend, finished eighth, made Q3 after his recent Saturday struggles. He finished ahead of Fernando Alonso in the Alpine, though Sebastian Vettel was outside the points in 12th. Does this suggest to you that Aston Martin maybe does have the edge in that battle for six in the Constructors? Well, you know, the reality of it is, <clears throat> coming into this season, I don't think they were going to be looking at fighting for sixth in the championship. I think their objective was to fight for third or, you know, at worst fourth. So they're far from achieving their 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 goals, I suppose, for this season. Um, it's one of those things where, obviously, the season started even worse and, and they had to build up and, and and take it on. But I think Lance Stroll's done a, done a pretty good job. You know, a lot of people question the son of the, the rich daddy, uh, Formula One team owner. But in reality, you know, he he's driven well. He he, he definitely wrings that car's neck and um, and pulls some results out of it. So at the end of the day, I think as a driver, he has bought into the situation better than, than some others. You know, we talked about Daniel Ricciardo there and, uh, you know, getting used to a new team. Same with Sebastian Vell, getting used to a new team. Now, Seb had, you know, had a good result a couple of races ago, but at the end of the day, you've got to get that consistency up there somewhere. And I think Lance is showing that. He's always in that little bunch of 8th, ninth, 10th or something around there. So he's he's showing the consistency. But as a team, I don't think they're performing anywhere near what they they believe they should do or that they really want to, um, even even right now. And obviously there was a controversy at the beginning of the year again with the regulation change affecting high-rate cars less than, than low-rate cars. So they fought their way through that, but in the same sort of manner as as Mercedes did and are still doing. You know, they're looking for something that's that's wrong, as opposed to within themselves looking for something to fix. And sometimes you just got to stand back a little bit and say, "Hang on, you know, we're not there. What what is it's going on now? We got to we got to dig deeper here as a team and uh, and try and pull a result out of it." Yeah, I had to say as well. I thought Lance Stroll drove drove well in that race. He had a good first lap. He's had those mishaps in qualifying recently, so good to see him doing well. And and he had the, the pace edge over Vettel as well. So it's quite an interesting little intra-team battle there at uh, the Aston Martin as well. A good subplot to follow. Looking behind that, Scott, Yuki Tsunoda, second point finish in three races for him down in 10th place. Just as at Paul Ricard, he struggled a bit with his tyres, though. So how do you see his progress? Solid run to one point, a good return, or do Gasly's heroics show, far, show how far Tsunoda still has to go? Well, yeah, the... Gasly's the benchmark, isn't he? He's, um, he's at one with that car. The team brings the best out of him. He's got a decent amount of experience now. So 
Gasly is going to take that car pretty much as far as it can go. And as we can see, that's quite a bit further than Sonoda can manage at the moment. So uh, it it was a better qualifying for him here. It was obviously, um, well, unlucky. Depends how you judge the blocking incident with Bottas in in qualifying, doesn't it? But um, unlucky in the sense that he he puts together that qualifying and then obviously doesn't quite reap the rewards of it because he has the grid pen. But... um, yeah, it was. I mean, it was an okay race. I don't think it was anything more than that. I think he needs a. He probably needs a few more races like this, actually, where it's just there's just not really much that's eventful about it because there have just been a bit too too many um, just being needlessly leery and qualifying and in his own words, sort of getting overexcited and then going out and trying to do something crazy on the first lap of Q one, which is just stupid. Um, and I, I think he, I think he, I think he's in the process now of rounding off the sharpest edges. But it's going to be a long one. The 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 tire management today, there seemed to be some confusion over the radio where um, it wasn't entirely clear. But the suggestion was either the team was asking something of him that he didn't quite understand, or um, he was feeding back something that the team didn't understand, and essentially. I think the end result was some crossed wires, Sonoda being told to push when he didn't have the tyres to push, rooting the rest of the tyre, and then leaving himself in in, in trouble. And uh, if there's anything you cannot do in this era of Formula 1, it's uh, it's massively overdo your tyres at critical moments. So uh, he, he clearly... He just has a he just has plenty to learn. He's a, he's a rookie. Um, it's really intense in that midfield fight. So... Ultimately, small misjudgments, let alone big ones, are going to be punished more than perhaps they might have been in the past. It's hard to say, but ultimately, top ten finish is fine. It's just nowhere near what that car was was capable of, and it would have been okay, I guess, if he'd been sort of ninth or tenth with Gasly bringing home a fifth or a sixth. But the fact is, if Gasly hadn't been eliminated, Sonoda would have uh, fit, probably finished outside the points, and um, I think that probably would have reflected his performance level in the race a bit a bit more than. Than, the, than this end result actually did. You know, it's definitely a point in the race when he was complaining about being told to push on the tyres, but I can understand why the communication isn't the most clear there because it's probably the, the least easy radio comms to, to follow. But that, that will improve. And yeah, a good solid point for Sonoda at least getting a, another point on the board. Alfa Romeo seems to spend most of its time having solid races that end up just outside the points. Kimi Raikkonen, only driver to start on hards, came home 11th. Giovinazzi was 13th after that turn three spin when Gasly, who of course had the puncher so couldn't slow up for turn three, hit him. Ewan Foley asks about someone he describes as a man we don't often hear about. He says Antonio Giovinazzi is having another respectable season. Do you expect him to be back in F1, presumably with Alfa Romeo next season, or will they look elsewhere? Would you be re-signing him, Gary? Um, I think he's doing a competent job, and you know it, it can get measured against Kimi Raikkonen. I mean, there's still um, there's still life in that old dog yet. You know, whatever you consider, he, he qualified 18th. He started on hards, which everybody will complain about the warm up of and getting off the grid with. But he came around at the end of the first lap, 13th. You know, he always makes makes up positions in, the, in that first lap, Kimi. So he's, he's he's racing pretty hard. So I think for Giovinazzi, he's got to just take on the fact that he's getting measured against Kimi. The car isn't isn't good enough, consistently enough, for him to learn how to drive it. I think that's the thing to look at. You, you know, you've got to get some consistency in there, week in, week out, so you can get to the pace of the car and know that's where you are. And then you can try and build on it that little better, that little bit better. And, you know, if you go right up the front of the grid, that's sort of what happens to the, the front guys, you know, Max, they got consistent pace, so then they can they can look deeper at how they actually find that other little tenth of a second or whatever. But when you've got a, t- a team that's up and down like a yo-yo, the driver can't get the confidence in the car or the or the consistency in the in his driving to actually start to learn for himself. So he can only measure himself against Kimi. This weekend wasn't great for him because of the situation, uh, turn three in that first lap when he got knocked off the road. But at the end of the day, I think he's a, a competent driver. I probably expected a bit more from him because whenever he was doing, as it was then, um, GP2, um, now called F2, I really did rate the guy. I thought he was excellent. and I, I thought he should have been signed up much, much quicker. But 
when he initially got in the Formula One car, he blotted his copbook a bit, and um, that didn't do him any favours. The big thing is going to be, is that team going to be Alfa Romeo next year, or is it going to be someone else? Going to go back to the Sauber name? You know, that's a bit of a question mark. And if it does that, then I think they'll be out there looking for drivers with money more than an Italian driver that's associated with Ferrari. So he's in the he's in the hands of the gods at the moment. I think he just needs to focus on on trying to make sure he is in there fighting with Kimi and beating Kimi, uh, both in qualifying and in the race, and and that's no easy task. Yeah, it's a funny one with Alpha. They're always just kind of on the edge of the points. I, I do tend to think, Mark, that maybe if they did have an absolute superstar in there, they'd be picking up a few more a few more points. Giovinazzi's good, but I'm not sure he's quite shown himself to be in that that potential mega category, shall we say? Well, he definitely hasn't, in fact. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, if you just sort of took a tenth and tenth and a half off the the qualifying times, it, it, it would tend to move at. Um, significantly further up that part of the midfield and from there you'd, you know, you're know, you going to probably score significantly more pop, more points so, um, yeah I think the, the driver lineup is um, is still a question mark there uh, yeah, Kimi Race as well but um, I think his, his best qualifying days are, are past and we don't really Giovinazzi's had the upper hand on Kimi in, the, in, in qualifying this year but um, don't really know where what that what's that's like as a baseline so yeah i would i'd be very interested uh if if, if i was uh fred Vasseur to, to be putting some uh young up-and-coming kids in to, to test and look and just see see what we you know the how it looks um the 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 rumors at the moment is that the alpha uh deal uh is is probably going to be renewed um, in, in which case, um, you know, you, you'd expect Giovinazzi to, to, to probably uh, to probably stay there. Um, but they, you've got people like Schwartzman and Eilert. Eilert's in the car in, on this coming Friday, actually. So yeah, uh, I think probably it's 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 not going to have the same driver lineup there next year as as this one. Um, let's let's just see. Yeah, it's an interesting one, the Alpha deal, because there was a point last year when it looked like it might not continue this year, then it was redone. Then at the start of this year, it seemed it wouldn't continue, and now it's edging back towards happening again. So obviously some uh, horse trading going on there in the background. Uh, the last of our member questions is from Yanis, who asks, what's the effect of the sliding scale of aerodynamic testing rules for the rest of the season? Does this mean that from July the 1st onwards, Red Bull has less aero time, and how will this affect the championship? The short answer on that is, it, yes, it will have a little bit less aero time, Gary, but will it have much of an impact? Um, well, it'd be very interesting to see if actually Mercedes were clever enough to use that sliding scale in this first part of the season because they get a little bit more time in the wind tunnel. So um, have Mercedes just sort of been playing games and saying, OK, we'll let Red Bull, you know, the, the switch is, what, 5%. So 2.5% less for Red Bull and 2.5% more for Mercedes going into the second part of the season. So if Mercedes were clever, if Mercedes go out in, in the next race, um and obviously the British Grand Prix and whatever from there on in and blitz the Red Bull thing, then I think it's going to be quite interesting to see if it was a calculated season. I, I don't think so by any means. Um, you know, a switch of 5% for those two top teams is a big switch. Um, if you if Mercedes weren't doing any development work for this year's car and they put that extra 5% into um, into this year's car to develop it for the end of the season then you know they can use it well, but they can obviously put that into next year's car. So it's all a bit difficult to see. I think the teams now are getting sort of coming to terms with it. So they're just getting more efficient with their wind tunnel and the CFD running. Um, and they're just eliminating some of the runs that, that basically don't take you anywhere. Um, so just by by this sliding scale, you have to just be more efficient in all of it. So I think I think all of the teams are doing that now, to be honest, and it's, it's just part of the part and parcel of what's going on. I don't see it having a big influence, but I would be interested to see if if Mercedes do suddenly start um, kicking the ball around a bit harder. That'd have been gloriously out, out audacious piece of gamesmanship, but uh, yeah, I agree with you. That's uh, enormously unlikely, but be, it would be fun. Uh, certainly, uh, it's interesting. I don't think it's going to have any impact on this year because all of that wind tunnel and aero testing time, the CFD 
time is, is focused on 2022 now because that is so important. Uh, Mark, we've got the last leg of the triple header coming up with the Austrian Grand Prix this weekend. Same track, same car, same drivers. So what scope is there for a different outcome? We've got different tyres. We've got a softer um, softer range of tyres. And I would, Im- I would imagine the um, the C5, which is going to be the soft, uh, w- will be um, giving up uh, quite early. So uh, we'll have a, probably a little bit of um, variety there because the, the tyres were pretty robust generally this weekend. Um, pr- probably be less so next. So, yeah, probably a bit more strategic uh, variability. We might see a few two-stops. Um you never know. You never know. I mean, the, the the last time the Mercedes was on the C5, Monaco and Baku had really struggled on it, um, but they're very different tracks. So yeah, I think that's um, there's 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 that, and there's always the the variability of the weather here. You know, you, you could have a beautiful hot sunny day, or you can have thunderstorms. So that's that's always very tempestuous around here. So yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily just going to be a, a a repeat of this weekend. And I think people should remember last year when we had the two back-to-back Silverstones, we had a, a complete switch, didn't we, in the, the front tyres with a problem for the, the first race. And obviously we had those those tyre failures after the really early safety car forced people into early stops. And then the second one, it, it was the rears. It's the blistering that Mercedes in particular suffered with and allowed Red Bull to win. So I just like the fact this is a nice test in how some of those little variables can make all the difference. We always talk about the the small details having having an impact. And we should briefly say there is a new tyre being trialled in FP1 and FP2. Each driver will get a couple of sets. It's a slightly more robust construction that uh, Pirelli had on the shelf. It's not dramatically different. It's connected to the to the current range but just trying to engineer in a little bit more security so do you think there's much scope for that impacting things if it is indeed adopted as the race tire for silverstone onwards uh it's 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 one of those things that uh you can only judge afterwards it sounds insignificant but um when you when you introduce a new rear construction in particular, it has quite a big effect on the aero so it might just trip up one car and not another car um I don't know, it, it's you know they're, they're not a tire that's it's not a construction that's been modelled. There's been no um, wind tunnel model done of it, so the teams haven't had a chance to have a look at it. It's just going to be uh, just going to be given their first look at it in this practice session, and so yeah, it, it, it might it might throw up a surprise or two. I don't know. Yeah, it's one of those sort of things where you know the tires obviously they're, they're changing the construction for a reason. Um, I think we saw that reason in, in Baku, but. Uh, the combination of the tire stiffness and actually the tire pressure, you know, they go hand in hand. So if they've got a stiffer tire and they can run it, you know, one psi, two psi lower, then the, the difference will will be minimised. But I doubt if Pirelli will start like that. And the one thing I would do is say, if you wanted to go to a circuit to test tires, it wouldn't be the Red Bull ring. Um, it's, it's just what, not that sort of. There's no real high. There is there is high load corners, but there's no real high load corners for long duration. Um, that we see at some of the other circuits. So they're all pretty snappy type corners. So um, I wouldn't like to sign it off at A1 ring or at the Red Bull ring and then say it was a good tyre for Silverstone. It might be a bit ambitious to do that, I think. I'm going to make a bold prediction and suggest that the tyres will be run on Friday. Various drivers and teams will complain about it and Pirelli will say they're wrong to complain. That's my bold prediction uh, about it, but it's uh, slightly stiffer sidewalls. The compounds are the same, but it's just a, a more robust construction. So sounds fine on paper, but we shall see. Well, thanks very much for your insights, Mark Hughes, Gary Anderson, Scott Mitchell. If anyone wants to hear more from them, head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen, as there's plenty to read there, including Mark's race analysis, Gary's in-depth look at George Russell's problem, my ever-controversial driver ratings, and Scott's having a look at why Red Bull's chance to beat Mercedes Mercedes is unlike any other tantalising title there. If you haven't already, do subscribe to this podcast and check out some of our sister podcasts, including the Race IndyCar podcast and Bring Back V10s, and have a look at our YouTube channel as well. Just search for the race. We're now going to turn our attention to the Austrian Grand Prix at the Red Bull Ring. Mark Hughes, fortunately, is already there, and we'll be back next week to tell you everything you need to know about the Austrian Grand Prix. (laughs) 